it's going to get loud. There you go. Trying to lower my voice. All right, that's better. Uh, we have some Bibles out in the foyer. There's, there's a table right out here with orange copies of the scripture. You can grab one, okay? We want to make sure that you have a Bible for yourself so you can read it and study it for yourself. Or the great thing about uh, the 21st century is you can pull it up on your phone. It's so easy. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to the book of Nehemiah, and we're actually going to be in Nehemiah chapter 10. Before I jump in and tell you what we're going to be talking about here today, um, I want to give you a little bit of background because we realize, you know, we're, we're really expectant of there being new people here week in and week out, and so I expect that some of you might be new and you may go, what's Nehemiah and what's the story? Well, the story of Nehemiah is actually an incredible story of brokenness and pain and trouble. And it all came about because of uh, the, the nation of Israel's choices to kind of run away from God and just to live however they wanted to live, to do whatever they wanted to do with whomever they wanted to do it, whenever they wanted to do it. And because of that, the entire nation was broken apart. They faced uh, other countries coming in and carrying them away into exile. And not only did they face that, but they faced spiritual brokenness. In fact, Nehemiah is a story that takes place about 140 years after really so many people were broken, their, their families were broken, their, their, their cities were broken, they were spiritually broken. For 140 years, they had really, many of them had stopped following God. And in a lot of ways, whether you, you, you know it or not, I think we can identify with the story of Nehemiah. There's things that are going on in our families right now that feel nothing but broken. Things that are going on in our communities, in our neighborhoods, that are just filled with brokenness. And you hear stories, you turn on the news, and you see story after story, whether it's another story about gun violence or, or, or something happening in our community, right? You're hearing all kinds of stories of brokenness. But the story of Nehemiah is a story of good work. It's a story of God entering in and doing something good to change not only the cities and the walls. See, if you're familiar with the story of Nehemiah, you've heard that they rebuilt a wall, and that's pretty cool. They, they, they built a wall all the way around Jerusalem. I mean, it was huge, and they did it in 52 days. But more than that, it's a story of God changing hearts. It's a, a story of God restoring families, fixing brokenness. And I don't know about you, but I could use a little bit of that every now and then. So over the last two weeks, we've been talking about things that God tends to use that help uh, restore the good work, that help restore our families and our brokenness. And today we're going to talk about one more you know, clear step that we can take that will help us engage with God in the good work. But here's the problem. We're going to talk about something today that uh, I already know, you like it and you hate it. Does that sound confusing? Makes perfect sense, right? You like it. I know you like it because I like it. I like it in certain, certain senses, and then I hate it in cer certain senses. Let me show you what we're going to talk about. Here's the word we're going to talk about today or the idea. We're going to talk about accountability. Now, I know you like it. You like it when we're talking about politicians, right? 
Can we be honest? I like the idea of accountability. When I'm talking about politicians or when I'm talking about bosses or leaders or people who manage money for us or banks or all of those things, how many of you would say, yep, I like accountability? Yes, we like accountability. But then when we flip the script and when we start talking about it and somebody gets up into my grill and comes into my world and says, hey, can I talk with you about your speech or your, your finances? Can I talk with you about how you're doing in your relationships? Can I talk with you about how you're treating other people? Can I talk with you about your work habits? Man, then all of a sudden, accountability is not so fun, is it? And that's the thing. And then you get, you get pesky pastors like me. And, and we get up in your face and we're like, we, we, you know, we bring up all kinds of fun stuff too. No, I, I, I get it. And that's the thing about accountability. There's parts of it that we love. We like it when we're talking about holding other people accountable, but we hate it when we're talking about our relationships or somebody holding us accountable for our decisions because we like autonomy. We like to be in charge. We are so independent. And so things like community and accountability often go by the wayside in an American church. And here's the thing. I have found that we're often more like this. We, we take this approach with accountability. We say, well, mind your own business. Why are you worrying about me? You take care of you, I'll take care of me. And I... I get it. I feel the same way. I'm right there with you. I understand it. I don't like it when people come and, and, and start looking at, at my life. It's not my favorite thing. But there's a question that I've been forced to reckon, to, like, reckon with as I've studied out Nehemiah chapter 10, the passage that we're going to look at today. The question is this. What if accountability actually raises our ability to grow and serve the Lord? What if accountability actually makes us better? What if accountability could be used by God to change things in your family, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in our city, much less in our country? What if we decided to start with us? What, what would occur? See, I learned something when I was a teenager. Um, when I was a teenager, I, I learned how to start uh, hiding things. Did anybody learn that as well? You learn how to start hiding things from, from your parents. D don't tell my parents to listen to this message, okay? <clears throat> I, I learned how to do that, and I probably learned how to do it when I was younger. But as a teenager, I learned like how to start hiding things. My parents didn't want me to date until a certain age, and I thought that was really dumb. So what did I do? I just hid it. Anybody identify? Don't have to raise your hands, teenagers. You'll get in big trouble right now. I, I learned how to start hiding things, and I thought that I was okay because, you know, as, as, as a teenager, you know everything. You know, you know everything that could ever be known, and your parents certainly don't know anything, right? And so I started hiding things, and then I learned the further I went along, when I started hiding things, I started sliding. When I started hiding, I started sliding. So what if, what if 
accountability actually helps me. It, we know this, and let me give you one more illustration, and then we'll jump into the text. We know this uh, from, from our children. How many of you are raising children right now? Have you ever tried, or grandchildren, have you ever tried to get a child to clean their room? Oh, it's a blessing, right? I have to apologize to, to a, a couple in the room. We're currently living, uh, renting a place from Bob and Teresa. They're in the room here. I'm really sorry for my kids' room in the house that we're renting from you. Um, it's bad. And what I found is that my kids will not clean that room unless... My wife or I stand there and say, okay, now this goes in the closet and this goes in the drawers. And no, that doesn't go underneath the bed. We don't store trash there. Right? You know. But when we hold them accountable, they get better. And they grow. And they change. And that's the story of the nation of Israel in Nehemiah chapter 10. Now it begins, it begins in the last verse of chapter 9. I want to show it to you, and I just want you to see what happened when the people decided to embrace accountability instead of running away from it. In verse 38 of chapter 9, look at what it says. In view of all this, this is, this is the people, they're all gathered. This is at the end of chapter 9. If you were here last week, we saw this on the 24th day of the same month when they really started having this spiritual awakening and they started changing. They're all gathered and it ends by saying this. In view of all this, we are making a binding agreement. We're putting it in writing and our leaders, our Levites and our priests are affixing their seal to it. In other words, they're saying, we're all here. We're all committing to this. We're all agreeing. You saw me write my name down. I saw you write your name down. I'm committing to this. I'm going to hold you accountable. You can hold me accountable. And then in verse 1, look at what it says. We see, we're, we're beginning to see the people who agreed to it. Those who sealed it were Nehemiah, the governor, the son of Hakaliah, and then Zedekiah. And if you want, if you have your Bible open, you can read. In fact, I would invite you to come up here and read all of these names for me. It's a lot of fun. <clears throat> you know, there's a whole list. In fact, we have 25 verses, 26 verses of names. And these names were the leaders, and they all agreed. And then all of the people as well were there, and they, they committed, and they agreed, and they signed on the dotted line. Why? Why did they, why did they do that? Here's why I think they did it. They all realized this very key truth that we need accountability in the areas that we don't want accountability. I need accountability in the areas that I don't want accountability. So let me just show you what happens. And I'll show you why they did this and what they decided to do, okay? Going back to verse 38, again, you may say, well, what do you mean accountability and why did they, what, 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 is, what does that mean? Verse 38, in view of all this, we're making a binding agreement. They're saying, hey, we're here, we're agreeing to this. If we don't do, a, do this, you can hold us accountable. If we don't go the way that we've all said we, we would, you can hold me accountable. You know what the interesting thing about my job is? You actually get to do that. You get to hold me accountable. You know that? That's, that's the beauty of leadership within the organization of the church, okay? 
But the reality is that when we take ownership of Bridgewater and when we become members together, we not only do you get to hold me accountable, but we hold you accountable as well to a, a, a binding agreement. Now, not legally binding, don't freak out. No, nothing like that. But we're saying, yes, we're in this together. We're going to do this together. And they put it all down in writing. So what did they put in writing? What did they deal with? What were they committing themselves to? Let me show you. First and foremost, they were committing themselves to deal with their sin and their struggles. And they did it. They dealt with their sin and their struggles. Look at uh, all the way down past the, the, all the names that are given to us in verse 28. Nehemiah 10, 28 says this. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the musicians, temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the neighboring peoples for the sake of the law of God. Catch this. Look. Here's who's involved, all of the people, priests, Levites, gatekeepers, musicians, temple servants, and, and everybody else. But what were they doing? They separated themselves from the neighboring peoples for the sake of the law of God. Now, what is that all about? For generations, the Israelites had been ignoring God and his instructions about their relationships. They'd been ignoring God. God told them, listen, don't... Don't marry people who don't love God. Don't get involved in business partnerships with people who don't love God. Don't do that. If you do that, they're going to lead their, your hearts astray and take you away from following the one true God. And so what's happening here is they're standing in front of everybody, and, and many of them had to, do, had to take hard steps, and they, they walked away from some of these relationships that were taking them away from God. And I know that sounds severe. It sounds severe to us in our 21st century you know, your mindset. But the reality is they finally woke up and they took God seriously and they said, nope, we're not going to keep doing what we've always done and we're not going to keep doing what all the rest of the world does. We're going to turn away from sin and we're going to follow God. We're going to do it because of the law of God God told us. Don't forget and when God warns us, and this is where it gets hard, because God, God talks to us about things that feel like meddling sometimes. Do you like it when, when God's word talks about money? Whew, I always like that, don't you? And of course, I'm a preacher, so that's all I ever talk about is money, right? So, you know, <clears throat> you get it, you know. No, it's not fun. Do we like it when God gives us instruction on, on our relationships or on our thought processes or how to deal with forgiveness or bitterness or all. No, we don't always like it. But when God tells you don't, he's also telling you don't hurt yourself. He's protecting us. So here the people are. They're committing themselves to deal with their sin and with their struggles and then later in the end of verse 28, look at what it says. Together with their wives and all their sons and their daughters who were able to understand. They brought their families into this and they taught their children and their, their families how to deal with their sin. Here's the good news. I, I had a good conversation with, with a, a family here at Bridgewater this week and and it was a really good reminder. Sometimes the things that we're talking about in this series can kind of feel like just a, a checklist. And I hope by the end of today, you won't 
feel that way, but I want you to know there is good news through Jesus. First John tells us if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Friends, what if we taught our children that and taught them how to run quickly to God and to know that he hears and that he's going to forgive and we don't have to be in hiding. We can actually have accountability because if we, if we cover up our sin, then we keep sliding. When we start hiding, we slide. They dealt with their sin and their struggle. Second, look at what else they did. They committed themselves publicly. And I wonder if we at Bridgewater, if we would choose to commit ourselves publicly. Let me show you the text, and then we'll talk about this. In verse 29, all these people now join their fellow Israelites, the nobles, and they bind themselves with a curse and an oath. Man, they were taking it seriously. That, that curse, it's not like Harry Potter, like Expelliarmus. Okay, if you don't know what that is, it's fine. But if you do, you have fun, you know. It's not that. No, it's, it's, it's not like that. It's a, hey, if we don't do this, then we realize we deserve God's judgment. That's what they were saying, okay? So they, they bound themselves with this curse, curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, the regulations, and the decrees of the Lord our Lord. In other words, they said publicly, this is who we are, we're God's people, we're going to follow him. We will obey. Now, what does that look like for us? There's a couple of things that we do around here at Bridgewater, and, and maybe this is the next step for you. One of the things that we're going to do, and Dan already talked about it in our host time, but we're, we're going to have people who go public on August 14th with their faith in Jesus Christ. I don't know exactly how many, but I think there's like six people right now in Bridgewater Vestal who want to get baptized. How awesome is that going to be, amen, on the 14th, right? <clears throat> Excuse me. When you go public with your faith through baptism, you're saying, hey, I'm a follower of Jesus, and I want everybody to know, and I'm going to aim to obey him. Second, maybe your next step has to do with taking ownership or membership here with us. See, when, when you become a member here at Bridgewater, there's, there's no passage in the scripture that tells you there should be membership. You're not going to find a passage that says church membership. But what you will find is that any time a group of people took God seriously and banded together, they committed themselves to the community. They were there for each other. When there was a need, they would meet it. When people were struggling, they would come alongside. When people were walking in sin, they would come alongside and lovingly, carefully, wisely, with the goal of restoration, come alongside and confront. That doesn't happen without some form of, of membership. And here at Bridgewater, you can, you can join a membership, but I don't want you to think that it's like, you know, you're joining a gym and now you have rights to go to the gym. No, it's not like that. It's more like we have responsibilities to one another and to God. And that's what these people were doing. They were saying, we have responsibility. We're taking it. I wonder, <clears throat> I wonder what it looks like for you and me 
to take responsibility, to publicly declare, do you have a next step? So all these people, they, they joined their fellow Israelites, the nobles, and they bound themselves together with a curse and an oath, and they agreed to do it. So they, first and foremost, they dealt with their sin, then they, they made a public proclamation, and then third, I want you to see an elaborating on this idea of dealing with their sin. They actually named their struggles, they named their sin, and they made a plan. So let's look at what their struggles were, and I wonder if some of them will... Uh, overlap with even struggles in our day. First and foremost, they had a problem with marrying people who were not following God. Now, these are people who had chosen to follow God. And I don't think, it, you know, if you, if you don't follow Jesus, if you're not a, if you're not a Christ follower, this is, this is not about you. But these are people who said, yes, I am serious about following God. And then they went against what God had told them to do. Look at the text. It says in verse 30, we promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or to take their daughters for our sons. Now, you could read that about being, or you could read that being about ethnicity, but it's not. It's not about being from other countries. It's not about being from other people. It's not about that. It, is, it was a spiritual issue. In fact, you can go and read Deuteronomy that God said, I do not want you to marry these other people because they worship other gods and are going to lead your hearts astray. Be careful. I wonder if even in our church, if we need to take God's word serious, seriously about marriage and relationships, that's what they chose to do. Second, they had a problem with obeying the Sabbath rest, so they chose to obey the Sabbath rest. This is probably more of a problem than we realize in America. Here's what I mean. We tend to have two extremes. We tend to work a way too much, or sometimes we overemphasize vacation and, and unplugging and getting away to the detriment of a real relationship with God. Well, here's what was happening in Israel in that day. The Sabbath would come, and people would still buy, sell, and trade. Why? Because they could make more money. And there was more opportunity. If you don't capitalize on the opportunity, guess what? What are you doing? Then you must not really care about having a good business. Or It's the same thing here today. It's the same thing. Same problems. Look at the text. It says, when the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath. What's that talking about? The neighboring people would come in and they could buy it cheaper. I mean, there's always a deal. Did you hear Sam's Club? Did you hear, you know, Walmart's got a sale? That's the thing. And there's nothing wrong with that. But God had told them, keep the Sabbath holy. Don't use the Sabbath as a day to be with family and friends and the community and commune with God. It's not all about sitting at home and singing kumbaya or something like that, but it is a day of rest and communion with family and friends and God. That's what it's for. And so they said, we won't do that anymore. And, and, and beyond that, every seventh year, we will forego working the land and we will cancel all debts. That was a financial decision. 
That was hard. The seventh year, we won't use the field. We won't plant. Why? Why were they doing it? They would leave it fallow, and there would still be stuff that would grow up. And guess who that was for? That was for the poor living in the community. And they would come, and they would harvest it. And they could eat it. And every seven years, they would cancel debts. So if, if I bought land from you, right, or if I rented land from you on the seventh year, if I still owed you money, they would cancel that debt. That doesn't seem like a financially wise idea. It was all about remembering whose money it was in the first place. It was God's, and he always provided. He set things up this way. Wow. Man, that's hard. Here they are publicly committing themselves to not marry people who are not following God and to obey the Sabbath rest. That's tough. I mean, they could have bought into the cultural idea and they could have made more money and we can do the same, but Bridgewater, we can't live like the rest of the world. Number three, they were struggling with giving and finances. So they committed to give the time and money needed to support the temple and priests and sacrifices. Now, <clears throat> there's nine verses here that deal with their offering and, and, and giving. And so I'm going to move quickly and, and go through these, okay? I'm just going to show you the verses and what they say. Here's what it says, starting in verse 32. <clears throat> it says this, We assume the responsibility for carrying out the command to give a third of a shekel each year for the service of the house of our God. Verse 33, for the bread set out on the table for the regular grain offerings, for burnt offerings, for the offerings on the Sabbath at the new moon feasts and at the appointed festivals, for the holy offerings, for sin offerings, to make atonement for Israel and for all the duties of the house of our God. Verse 34, we, the priests, the Levites, and the people have cast lots to determine when each of our families is to bring to the house of our God and set times each year a contribution of wood to burn on the altar of the Lord our God. As it is written in the law, verse 35, we also assume responsibility for bringing to the house of the Lord each year the first fruits of our crop and of every fruit tree. Before I move on from this... They're saying, first and foremost, we're going to give the best of our crop back to God. We're going to give a tithe of the best of everything that God has given us back to God. And I know this sounds kind of crazy, but, man, they were committing themselves to some big things. Verse 36 says this, as it is also written in the law, we will bring the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle and of our herds and of our flocks to the house of our God, to the priests ministering there. Verse 37, moreover, we will bring to the storerooms of the house of our God, to the priest, to the, the first of our ground meal, of our grain offerings, of the fruit of all of our trees and of our new wine and our oil and we will bring a tithe of our crops to the Levites, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all the towns where we work. A priest descended from Aaron is to accompany the Levites when they receive the tithes, and the Levites are to bring a tenth of the tithes up to the house of our God, to the storerooms of the treasury. Man, alive. You realize, if you calculate out what they were committing themselves to, they were committing themselves to give upwards of about 30% of all of their income to the work of the Lord. And I struggle sometimes with the idea of a tithe, <laughs> personally. Here they are publicly 
committing themselves to it. But I don't want you to miss why. See, they were committing themselves to it because it was the work of the Lord. They committed themselves to the work of the Lord. Let me show you the last verse, verse 39. The people of Israel, including the Levites, are to bring their contributions of grain, new wine, and olive oil to the storerooms where the articles for the sanctuary and for the ministering priests. The gatekeepers and the musicians are also kept. We will not neglect the house of our God. That's what they said they would do. Now, here's the thing. There's parts of this that I read, and I'm like, man, that was extreme. But what I take away from it is that idea that when it comes to accountability, I really need it in some of the areas that I just don't want it. If I legitimately want to grow, if I legitimately want to be used by God, if I legitimately want to see my family be different, if I re really want to see this community healed, if I want to see something change in my nation, if I want to see something change in this community, then, then something has to start with me and something has to start with us, Bridgewater, where we say, hey, we, we're going to be open and honest with each other and we're going to need accountability and we're going to hold each other accountable to obey the Lord and to go forward. And we say around here, we're here for more and better followers of Jesus, but none of that's going to happen if... We aren't obeying the Lord, right? So what if? What if we need accountability in the areas where we don't want it? It raises a couple of questions for me. Where do I need accountability? You can ask yourself that question. I would probably tell you an easier question to ask is, where do I not want accountability? Does it have to do with your drinking? Does it have to do with your finances? Does it have to do with a relationship? Does it have to do with your, your, your time with the Lord? Does it have to do with your witness at work and your mouth and your involvement in the community? What, what is it? The reality is, we slide when we hide. And I don't want that for you. And I know neither does the Lord. See, here's what God calls us to in 1 Peter 4. He says this, Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as a faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. But we can't do that unless we are committed to one another and committed to the Lord and obeying the Lord and we have committed together to carrying this out. So I want to ask you to do something, Bridgewater. I want to ask you to promise to hold each other accountable to obey God. I want to ask you to do that. Now, one of the ways that we can do that right now some of the things that we talked about earlier with baptism and, and, and membership, but we have another thing coming up that makes it really easy. We have an opportunity to be the hands and feet of God in our community, to go and serve our community. 
And what if we chose to, to do that together? What if we chose and said, okay, hey, we're going to go and we're going we're gonna to do Be the Church Sunday and we're going to go out and we're going to serve. What if we chose to do that? See, as you leave here today, you're going to have an opportunity to grab one of these. And if you don't need one, it's okay. But I'd urge you to grab one of these cards. Some of our volunteers will be at the back door. If, if you have a neighbor that you can give one of these to, this is a little card that talks about um, asking people, hey, how can we serve you? Is there something that you need help with? I would urge you, grab one of these, give it to a neighbor. And then if they have something that we can legitimately help with, I mean, you may know whether there's older people in our community or people who are disabled or people who are not able to do things. Please, let us know. So we can do this together. We can commit together as a community to go and, and serve. Now let me close with this. As you hear me today and over these last three weeks, it might be easy to go, well, man, I guess if I just read the Bible and if I just pray and if I just am held accountable, then maybe everything will be fixed. Well, the story of the nation of Israel would show you that that's not true. But God wasn't quite yet done. See, 400 years after the day of Nehemiah, Jesus showed up. And when Jesus showed up, the people were still struggling, and in many ways, you know, even though they'd gone through peaks and valleys, in many ways, they were, they were living in darkness. But when Jesus showed up, right before his death, burial, and resurrection, Luke records for us that Jesus said, this cup that has been poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And for an Old Testament person or an Israelite to hear that, you would hear new covenant, and you'd go, wait a minute. Ezekiel and Isaiah wrote about that. And Ezekiel told us that the new covenant was when God would come in and he would give us a new heart. He would put his spirit in us and we would be able to understand his word and we would have the, the horsepower, so to speak, to obey him. In other words, what he was saying is the real answer is Jesus. He's what we need. I don't know where you're at today. And if you are a Christ follower, I would urge you to take ownership with us and engage in this community and embrace accountability. But I don't want anyone here to hear me saying that you can do it all on your own. No, we need Jesus. He changes everything. How about you? Have you come to a place where you've realized your need? I want you to know that the Lord is, just as our kids were singing, he is awesome and he is powerful. But I believe that because of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. He did it for you. I want to invite you to look to him today. Would you pray with me? Father God, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you for the fact that I don't have to do this on my own. And, and yes, you've given us tools that are helpful. You've given, you've given us the tool of being in your word and seeing the truth about ourselves. Thank you for that. You've given us prayer. 
You've also given us accountability in the church, and so we can, we can, we can be in community with one another. But God, I, I pray that we would never forget that what we need is Jesus. God, I'm confident that in a room like this today that there's probably some, some hurts. And for the one who's sitting here today feeling crushed by the weight of the things going on in life, God, I pray that you would give encouragement and that you'd let them know that, that you see them and that you love them and you care. God, is my prayer that for that person that they might turn to you and see that there is hope for not only forgiveness, but there's hope for new life in Jesus. We thank you, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.